So you're going to want a Bible this morning. We're going to do what we do, dive into God's Word this morning. Um, if you need a Bible, we have some people walking around, slip up a hand, they'll put a Bible in your hand so you can follow along with us. And as they're doing that, uh, you can actually go on and open up to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. I'm going to do something a little different today. The... Uh, um, and while you're finding your place, just one other reminder that, uh, so for the last several months, and, and I think this has been significant in our church body, of the things that God is stirring us up or stirring up in us as a church family for the next season. Um, but for the last several months, uh, once a month, uh, we gather together here in this space on a Thursday night to just worship and pray and minister to each other uh, in, in prayer and asking God to meet any needs uh, for, for healing, uh, for restoration, for freedom. Um, and so uh, those worship nights have been really powerful and just some incredible testimonies of the way God is uh, moving in people's lives and giving clarity and direction. And so uh, our next one is actually this Thursday, Thursday night at 6, um, 6.30. We will be, uh, we'll be gathered here in this space and just invite, recommend, uh, recommend all of you to come be a part of that night of just simply, uh, just simple worship and prayer. So hopefully you'll put that on your calendar and then prioritize it because it really has become part of the lifeblood, I think, of what God is doing by His Spirit in this church. And so this summer, we have, uh, we've been in this 40 stories uh, series, looking at all these different uh, stories of 40, 40 days, uh, the seasons that God's people finds the, find themselves in, and how God uh, is moving in their lives in those seasons, but not just simply for the season that they're in, but to prepare them for the next season. So these uh, wilderness seasons, seasons of discouragement, seasons of struggle, seasons of fear, seasons of doubt, and how God is faithful in those seasons, but then also faithful to produce fruit out of those seasons. And our hope and prayer has been not just that it'd be an interesting walk through the Bible, but that we would find ourselves in these stories, that we'd recognize the seasons that we've walked through in life. Seasons of discouragement or struggle. And seeing, look back on those seasons and seeing the faithfulness, the fingerprints of God in even some of those lowest moments. When maybe even during that time, it didn't feel like God was anywhere near. But we look back and see that his hand was on us the whole time. And maybe not just simply to look back, but to recognize for whatever season that you're in right now, that God would strengthen your faith, give you courage, recognizing that he is at work, always at work, producing his life in us as we respond to him. And so we have all of these accounts, Noah in the flood for 40 days, Moses uh, on Mount Sinai for 40 days, uh, even uh, uh, you know, Ezekiel, Fasting for 40 days, Elijah hidden away for 40 days, up to Jesus taken by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. But there's another 40 that you find uh, often in the Bible that moves from seasons to generations, and that is moving from 40 days to 40 years. 
And what we recognize is that the seasons of our lives, as we move through those seasons, as God is doing his work in us, as we're learning to respond to his voice in our lives or or, uh, to, uh, to follow his ways, that his work going on in us is actually moving us in a trajectory, is moving us in a direction that actually builds out a life. And oftentimes we walk through these different seasons on our journey with God. They're not necessarily a path that we would have chosen. And yet somehow they miraculously end up taking us to the exact place that we always wanted to go. To become the kind of person that we always wanted to be. And so we're going to look at this at a few seasons of 40 years. But before we do that, sorry, I'm looking for a water. Is there, I'm, uh, you're a hero, Carla. Thank you. Well done. Carla's been like a mother to me since I was in middle school, by the way. So that was a very Carla moment just then. But speaking of a lifetime. So, uh, so it was interesting as I'm, as I'm studying this passage and, uh, and looking at these 40 years, that, uh, these different seasons of 40 years, and moving from seasons to generations or from, uh, from these moments in life to a life well lived, uh, that in, and studying all of this, that God kind of merged together two passages that I had never seen the connection in before. And so my prayers as we look at a book, it's probably a familiar passage, the parable of the sowers, that we might see it in a, in a fresh way today. And so I'm going to do my best to, to, to kind of dive in to this. Um, but as I say every week, way more important than anything I have to say from up here is what God wants to speak to you through his word. And so I encourage you to, to dig into these scriptures on your own uh, over the course of this week. But as I'm preparing for this and I'm thinking about moving from life to legacy, from seasons to generations, it also just comes, happens to be that on Thursday, I had the privilege of officiating a wedding for this young couple uh, that was just, is just smitten in love. I mean, absolutely. They're starting their life together. They couldn't be more, you know, tickled with each other. There's no wrong that can be done by the other. I mean, I just told them, I was like, they are some of the most joyful, kind people I've ever met. It was just a fun wedding to get to be a part of. And it was actually this girl that I knew when she was a little girl. Uh, she's, um, her, her father and, and her mom and, fa- and dad were missionaries in Peru and Ecuador. And we used to go take trips down there. And I just remember these three little kids running around in the yard. And now Alex, one of those little girls, is the one that's getting married. And, uh, and so she... Uh, she grows up within this missionary home and uh, we're partnering with them uh, through Grace Snellville. And uh, as uh, they heard her, her family, they ended up taking a furlough and moving to, to Snellville for a few years, I mean, for a few months. And while they were there, uh, her mom had a brain hemorrhage and uh, tragically died. And, uh, and that was 10 years ago. And I mean, it just... 
I mean, it, it was awful. Uh, for everyone, you have these three kids that are here. Uh, their dad is from Ecuador, so he had to go back to Ecuador, but now you have these three kids are in the States, so they're trying to figure out what to do with them. And, uh, and actually, a beautiful story, Alex uh, ended up being invited to live with her D-group leader, um, and for the next 10 years, they sort of became the adoptive family. So at this wedding, you've got Alejandro and his new wife and their young son, and, and then the adopted family, and it was just this incredible, uh, this, this beautiful wedding. And then she's marrying this guy, Joel, who, uh, come to find out, like I said, he's one of the most joyful people you'll ever meet. And uh, yet his story begins that he lost his parents at a really young age, was raised by his aunt and uncle, and then um, and at 18, his aunt and uncle were killed by a drunk driver in an accident. He was in California, moves to Georgia, gets a job in this company, comes across Alex, hears her story, they hear each other and each other's stories. And I share that to say, here I am. I, I mean, I led by saying this is one of the most joyful, kind couples you'll ever meet. And yet their story is born in absolute grief and tragedy, right? They've been through some seasons. And how they're learning to navigate those seasons will end up setting the trajectory of their lives. Right? We can see that, right? About who they become as they stand here, but now they still have this whole life in front of them to live. So that was, that was Friday night. And then I woke up Saturday morning, and I had the privilege of officiating a funeral uh, for, a, for a dear friend, uh, the, Alan Stewart, the dad of, of Matt, Amanda Stewart, if you know them, part of our church. And it was amazing because uh, Alan Stewart, this funeral, and several of you were there at this, it was this unbelievable celebration of a life well-lived. Alan is not a famous man. He didn't hold any community positions. I mean, uh, he lived a kind of quiet life in Walton County, and this auditorium was packed. The front row is filled with his kids and his grandkids. But the amazing thing about Alan's life is that, uh, I mean, there's lots of amazing things. I mean, we, all these stories that began to emerge after he died of people coming to the family and being like, I just got to tell you what your dad did for me uh, at my lowest point. He wasn't a rich man, but lived generously. I would say he was wealthy in all the ways that really matter. But Alan began in, with an absolutely tragic upbringing uh, in the foster care system, kicked out of multiple homes, stood before, uh, I mean, uh, arrested multiple times. And one of his daughters shared a story that she believes is one of the major turning points in her dad's life is that Alan stood before a judge uh, for you know, the multiple time. And this judge had this moment of grace. Now he looked at Alan and he said, you've got a choice, son. You can either go to prison or you can join the services. And Alan was like, uh, I will choose the Navy. And so he, uh, he joined the Navy on that ship, met a group of guys that basically uh, um, forced him to going to church with them. But at church, he had an encounter with Jesus that absolutely transformed his life. And now you have this whole family line that has been forever changed because Jesus got a hold of this young man's life. A young man that was born abandoned and alone in a cell of a roomful, auditorium full of people that said, this was a good man and we were loved by him and we love him. The trajectory of his life. And the way that Jesus intersects and through in our season, meets us in those seasons, but it's the culmination of seasons that build a life. 
And so I was thinking about this idea of legacy and, and these 40 years, and there's actually three kings in the Bible that were told reigned for 40 years. I just want to go and pull up that slide. 40 years representing a generation. You have Acts 13, 21. Then they asked for a king, talking about the Israelites, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for how long? 40 years. 2 Samuel 5, 4. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. 1 Kings eleven forty two. So the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was... 40 years, three kings that all reigned for a generation for 40 years, all of them anointed by God, called by God, heard from God, uh, empowered by God, and yet all three of those kings in their lives with completely different legacies. You see that? C.S. Lewis has a great quote. If you want to pull that up from mere Christianity. Every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you, the part that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you're slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. It's a very powerful quote, right? And one that we need to wrestle with a little bit. The idea is that we're all becoming. That, and Jesus makes it clear that the key to the trajectory of our lives is our ability to receive and respond to the voice of God in our life. The key to the trajectory of our lives, the legacy that we will leave behind, is our ability to recognize and respond to the voice of God in our lives. And we see in these three kings, three very different ways of responding to the voice of God. And as I was thinking about those, God connected it to another story that Jesus talks about. Jesus in you know, five, uh, sorry, Matthew seven, makes this amazing statement at, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where he talks about that the wise man, which you get Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, uh, that didn't necessarily live by his own wisdom. Uh, Jesus says, the wise man is the one that hears my words and puts them into practice. He's like a, a man who builds his house on solid rock. And the wind and the waves come and they beat against that house, but it doesn't fall. But then the foolish man is the one that hears my words, but doesn't put them into practice, does nothing with them. And that's like the one that builds his house on sand and the wind and the waves come and it falls down with a great crash. A few chapters later, Jesus is telling this parable. And he talks about the parable of the sower. Matthew 13, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And hopefully 
you can begin to see some of these parallels of what it means to live a fruitful life and the legacy that we leave behind. So that same day, Jesus went out of the house. He sat by the sea. Great crowds were gathering around him, and he got into a boat, and he sat down. Now, there's a whole crowd. As they stood on the beach, he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came down and devoured them. Now, other seeds that fell on rocky ground, where they didn't have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Now other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them out. Now other seed fell on good soil, and it produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So he who has ears, let him hear. I started thinking about these three soils, and I don't know that Jesus was thinking about these three kings, but I think that there's a really beautiful, powerful parallel between the soils and these kings and the legacy that they left behind. And again, hopefully, as we're reading the scripture, it's not just some old stories that are interesting to tell, but that we can read ourselves into these stories and asking this question, all right, how am I Receiving, responding to the word of God in my life? And what is the trajectory of my life as I navigate the seasons that I go through? And so, the people listening to Jesus tell this parable about the seed and fruitfulness don't understand what he's talking about. The disciples pull him aside and they ask him to explain. So Jesus very clearly tells them exactly what he means. So here's the explanation for the, the parable of the sower. Verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, and that word understand isn't just simply like this like intellectual assent, like I get two plus two equals four. It's, more, it's the idea of like receiving, absorbing, uh, becoming transformed by. The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown into his heart. That, this is the seed that's sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. But when tribulation or, tr or struggles or persecution, attack, arises on account of the word, immediately falls away. And as for the one that was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, receives it, absorbs it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Now, all throughout Scripture, Jesus makes it clear that God's design for our lives is to live fruitful lives, lives of depth and impact. There's the fruit of the Spirit, the, 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 the ways of God bearing itself out in our life, love and patience, kindness and gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. In Philippians, Paul talks about the fruit of generosity, 
Colossians, the fruit of good work. In John 15, Jesus talks very clearly that I have called you, appointed you to go and to bear fruit. Much fruit, fruit that will last. God's design, going all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, is that we would live fruitful, abundant lives. It's God's desire. And here he is talking about like how is it that God's word that goes out for all, that some end up living these fruitful lives and then some end up falling away. And so Jesus actually mentions four uh, soil types, and then we said there's actually three kings. But as I was thinking about it, I actually think that the first soil is best illustrated by the Israelites themselves. The hard soil that couldn't receive the word, uh, that, that there was no place for the word to land, that could, didn't respond to what God was speaking and doing, that lived in fear and insecurity and grumbling and complaining forgetting what God had done, wandering their own way, walking away from God over and over again. I think the Israelites represent well that hard soil. In fact, if you look at 1 Samuel 8, 4, it says that all the elders of Israel gathered and came together, came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. In other words, we need somebody to hear from God for us. And you're about to die and your sons are disobedient. So appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing they said, displease Samuel, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them according to all the deeds that they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they're also doing the same to you. Now then, obey their voice, because they're not obeying mine. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. In other words, give them what they're asking for, which God's pretty consistent on being willing to give us what we're asking for. And they said, no, the people refused. So Samuel's still pleading with them, let God be your king. God, who is the one that said, I'm gonna make you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. I will fight your, battles before, uh, fight your battles for you. I will go before you. I will walk beside you. I will come behind you. I will provide everything you need. I will protect you. I am the king of all kings, the creator of the universe. I am your God and you are my people. And yet, in spite of that, they said, yeah but, yeah, but we need a king we can see. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, there shall be a king over us, that we may be like the other nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. The people who were not able to receive the word of God And think about the shallow soil that Jesus says, see that it falls on rocky places where it doesn't have much soil, springing up quickly because the soil was shallow. There are no roots, there's no depth, there's no substance. I think represents well King Saul. Saul, who looked good on the outside, stood head and shoulders above every other Israelite from all exterior appearances, was the ideal candidate to be king. 
to go fight their battles for them as they begged for. And Saul, anointed by God, he grew up fast in, into that role. He had some immediate victories in battle. But despite the fact that God had called him to be king, ruler of his people, the leader of leaders, Saul remained an insecure little boy, self-defensive and self-protective, living in fear and trying to make sure that his little kingdom was taken care of. Jealous. who saw David, this young man that ended up defeating the giant that was intended for Saul, serving under Saul, fighting battles for Saul, saw David not as an opportunity for his greatest legacy, which David could have been for Saul, but he saw Saul as a threat to his kingdom. And that ends up undermining his leadership the rest of his life. Saul, who began inquiring of the Lord, listening to Samuel, the voice of the prophet. But pretty quickly, when God doesn't respond fast enough, Saul quickly turns his ear away. When trouble comes, when he's attacked from the outside, when there's struggles, when things don't work out the way he thinks they are, he quickly doubts God's faithfulness and presence and begins to choose his own path. And I just wonder how many of us can read our own story into Saul's story. I mean, God's amazing when things are going great, right? When it's obvious our life is blessed and everything's working out. But what when our world, about when our world falls apart underneath us? When God doesn't show up as fast as we think he should. When it feels like we're under attack or there's things that are threatening our future. Are we still willing to lean in and listen and wait on God? 1 Samuel 13, 8. Uh, Saul has, has won multiple victories and he's about to go into battle again. And uh, he's going to offer an offering um, to God before he goes But Samuel tells him Listen wait for me to get there I'm going to get there in seven days And Saul's waiting Seven days pass And there's still no sign of Samuel His, his troops begin to kind of trickle away the, the army is getting the, the enemy army is getting closer and closer And Saul scared And self-protective And doubting Decides that he can't wait for Samuel anymore And goes on and does what God told him to wait on Samuel, a few moments later, shows up. As Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. The depth of Saul's character was not enough to carry the weight of his calling. And when trouble came, he crashed and burned. 
Now, what's amazing about God is his incredible grace and patience because he actually gives Saul a second chance. He continues to speak to Saul, continues to lead Saul. And two chapters later, he's commanding Saul to go against the the Amalekites and to completely demolish them, to, to just decimate them, the enemies of God. And Saul goes into battle, he has victory, but he doesn't listen to what God told him to do. He decides to keep a little bit of their plunder for himself, to keep the animals for his soldiers. And sure enough, Samuel shows up again and says, what have you done? God told you very clearly what to do, and you have chosen your own way. In verse 17, 15, 17, And this is to me one of the most painful statements in the Bible. Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. He sent you on a mission. He told you what to do. And it continues on. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul, self-defensive and self-protective. Battling his own fear and he can't hear from God. Even at the end of his life, the final story from his life, he's inquiring of the Lord, he's not getting an answer, so he ends up going and finding some witches in the woods to inquire of them to pull up a dead spirit out of the ground. He's just that desperate to get instruction from somewhere. Ends up going into battle, falling on his own sword and dying, watching his sons get slaughtered around him. And the legacy of Saul, the first king of Israel, is a failed king who gave up on God, lost his kingdom, and didn't live into the man that God called him to be. Like seed that grew up quickly and had no root. And then we get the crowded soil. This is an interesting sea uh, 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 word picture that Jesus uses in that, you know, there's actually two, um, two seeds that end up rooted in the soil with the capacity to bear fruit. I used to, like, when I read that story, I thought, of, like, there's, you know, one seed that's actually being productive. It's the seed that falls on good soil. But there's a third seed or another seed that actually has the capacity to bear fruit. It's, it's rooted, it's going deep, it's coming up strong. And yet subtly around it, other things begin to grow that begin to crowd out this seed and choke it out so it actually doesn't have the capacity to bear fruit. We live in Georgia, so everyone knows what kudzu is. So this should be a very familiar picture of how this works, Right? Or in your backyard, if you've got that green ivy, that seems like in a summer it will take over a tree. This is the same picture. He's talking about like there's, there's this soil that the farmer's trying to tend these crops and it's growing up and all of a sudden these other weeds come out and they grab a hold of it, choke it, and it never is able to bear fruit. And I think we can see in the crowded soil an incredible picture of the life and the legacy of Solomon. Because Jesus is actually very specific when he says what the weeds are that choke out the word of God in that life. I mean, I'm sure there's a hundred different things that can crowd out God's voice in our lives. But there's two that Jesus names. What does he say? 
the worries, the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness, the illusion of wealth. Now, is that not an incredible indictment of American culture? Is that not an incredible indictment of my life? Of the ways that God's word gets choked out of my life because of the worries of this world, that all of a sudden I begin to live in this little bubble where I think that I'm the one in charge. I think I'm the one that has to make it happen. I think I'm the one that has to determine the best way. And there's no room for God because of the worries and the cares and the concerns that I was never even meant to carry. Or the places that I begin to think, if I get just enough, if my bank account is big enough, if I can build the walls high enough, if, if, I, can, if I can orient my life and I can get enough stuff, then I'll be taken care of. And in fact, if I can get enough, why do I even need God? Because when a rainy day comes, I've got my savings account. I can navigate this life because I have enough. But if we take a split second and zoom out just a little bit, we can see how incredibly obvious of a lie that is, can't we? All it takes is a 9-11 or an October 2008 or a COVID to reveal the illusion that our wealth can actually make us okay in life, can protect us, provide all our needs, give us substance and depth, bear fruit in our lives. And yet so quickly this false Illusion becomes the thing that chokes out the very word of God in us. So what do we see in Solomon? I'll move quickly through here. As I said, I mean, I encourage you to spend time in, in the word this week and look at these kings, look at their stories and, and think about these soils. But Solomon is David's son uh, through his illicit uh, or after his illicit union with Bathsheba. Um, but he's also the anointed son, the one that God had called to build his father's kingdom, that God had passed on this desire in David's heart to build a temple, a place for God's presence to dwell. And they actually said to David, your hands are too bloody. You, you fought too many wars. It's actually gonna be your son, Solomon, whose name means peace, who's gonna be the one that builds a temple for me, a place that my glory can be known to the nations. And, and, uh, and so it's actually Solomon that takes on this task as a young boy of becoming king and to follow in his father's footsteps. And early on, Solomon is, is tuned in to God. He takes this task that he's been given and he's obedient to follow the ways that, of his father. His father gives him this charge, do not forget my words and the ways of God, Solomon, for all of your life. God comes to Solomon and says, all right, you can have anything in the world, what do you want? And we know this story, right? That's what Solomon's known for. And Solomon asks, not for riches, not for power. He asked for wisdom. Great answer. And sure enough, God says, well done. And we know Solomon as the wisest person who ever lived. With books of the Bible written by Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. We quote the wisdom of Solomon. And yet if you look at the end of Solomon's life, it was a train wreck. And the legacy that he left behind is one of, of a failed king that withered on the vine. But it's so interesting because it begins so subtly in Solomon's life. 
Because from the beginning, I mean, he is faithful. It's, it's clear multiple times it says he did exactly as God commanded him to do. Actually, if you go to 2 Kings uh, um, 3, sorry, 1 Kings 3. Look at this. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. And that little except, that seems like such a small deal. I mean, he's following God in all the ways. He's doing what God commands, except he was worshiping God on the high places, the places that the, the, uh, the false gods of the neighboring um, nations were worshiped. And God had been very clear. Yes, worship me, but worship me the way that I tell you and where I tell you. And God had said, you only are to sacrifice to me in uh, the place where my presence is, in the tabernacle or what would become the temple. And so this small, subtle slide into disobedience. But isn't that sort of the way it works for all of us? Like, I haven't met anyone who their life is going great, they're being faithful, they're, they're you know, walking with the Lord, they're, you know, investing in their kids, they're, they're devoted to their marriage, and then they wake up one day and they're like, you know what? I'm gonna throw it all away today. I'm gonna wreck my marriage, destroy my relationship with my kids, trash my job. It just seems like something to do on a Wednesday. No. In fact, most of the people I meet whose lives have completely fallen apart because of the choices they made, what they're saying is, I, they got to a place where they looked at their life and they go, I said I would never do this. I said back here that I would never become that. Because it's not like a one-day decision. It's a, it's a slow slide into the places that we said we would never go. It's the slow growth of weeds that cho choke out God's word in our lives. As you can see, read about Solomon's life, you discover this other subtle thing. In 1 Kings 6.37, at the end, we get that, that Solomon was faithful to do exactly what God commanded him, built the temple uh, that... Uh, the Lord had described. And in the 11th year of his reign, the temple was finished according to all of his plans and specifications. He spent seven years building it. And then the very next verse, 1 Kings 7, 1, Solomon took 13 years to finish building his palace. And I'll let you read your own story into that little verse. Solomon took basically twice as long building his own house as he spent devoted to building God's. And so quite subtly, Solomon's focus shifts from advancing God's kingdom to building Solomon's empire. Now I wonder how many of us can read our own story into that story. Or maybe we're not like Saul living this self-defensive, self-protective little life, but... We've devoted our energy and our time more to building our own empire than advancing God's kingdom. The worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth.
So much so, we get to 1 Kings 8. Uh, Solomon offers this beautiful prayer of dedication and gratitude. 1 Kings 10, he meets the queen of Sheba, begins to try to impress her with his wealth, so that by the time we get to 1 Kings 11.1, 1, we read that King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter. He loved Hittite women and women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, and Sidon. They came from the nations about which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, never intermarry with them. They will surely tempt you to follow their gods. But Solomon was obsessed with their love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 wives who were concubines. In his old age, his wives tempted him to follow other gods. He was no longer committed to the Lord his God as his father David had been. And then lastly, we get to the good soil, which I think that we can read into the good soil, King David. But what's amazing about King David is that he wasn't a perfect king. In fact, he made a massive, massive mistake and failure that ended up defining the, the, his family. And yet somehow the legacy of David's life is that he was a man after God's heart. So much so that the Messiah, Jesus, who would come from the line of David would be known as Jesus, the son of God, son of David. That's David's legacy, which actually gives me hope. Because when I look at this and I begin to compare my life to the, the parable of the soils and look at these kings, I can way more read my life into those earlier kings and those other soils than any kind of perfect life that would end up with this fruitful outcome that I'm hoping for. I mean, there's so many times I can look back on and say that I operated out of self-defensive or self-protection and jealousy or envy that I was more consumed with building my empire than advancing God's kingdom, that I let the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out God's word in my life. There's so many times I can look at my own failures and flaws and mistakes and wonder how am I gonna get to the end of my journey and look back and have left a legacy of fruitfulness. And we get to David. I mean, what do we know about David's life? He started humble, trusting God, tending sheep, writing worship songs in the field, and then slaying giants. Remained faithful to a king that tried to kill him multiple times. And that he consistently, over and over again, lived a life that his face was turned towards God. Honest, vulnerable went to God in his fear, went to God in his pain, went to God when he felt abandoned, when he wondered what God was doing, that he was honest and open before God, even in his lowest, especially in his lowest. Ears that listened and were tuned in to the voice of God and a life that responded to God's word. So you get 1 Kings 15, 4. Nevertheless, this is God talking to another king about blessing him because of David. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. 
because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now look at this. And did not turn aside from anything that he, God, commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. You know, that little matter of, you know, this adulterous affair with one of your general's uh, wives that you end up murdering him. Yeah, that little thing. That's a little footnote, except, right? So what's the difference? That even in David's failure, his face turned back to God. His heart was open to respond to God. You see, earlier when God shows up through Samuel to rebuke uh, Saul for not listening, what does Saul do? Immediately begins to give excuses, to blame, yeah, but God. Immediately begins to get defensive, to try to justify, to, tell, to retell the story, to put himself in the best light. We get David, who has this massive failure, gets confronted and rebuked by Nathan in this powerful way. And at the end of God's rebuke through Nathan, this is what David says. One line, I have sinned against the Lord. He owns it. He doesn't try to blame anyone. He doesn't try to justify himself. He turns his face back towards God. And we get a deeper look when David will later write a song about his, uh, this moment, Psalm 51. And David will write to God in reflection of his sin and failure. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. May you be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I was sinful from birth. In God, I recognize you delight in truth and the inward being. You teach me wisdom and the secret heart. Purge me and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. And he continues on. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. That even in his failure, David's heart turned, face turned back to God, his ears tuned into God. his heart responsive to God. So three kings, three different legacies. None of them lived a perfect life. There was only one perfect and true king, and that was Jesus. And it's Jesus that extends this invitation back into intimacy with himself. That at the cross, Jesus took all of our sin and our failures and our baggage and our flaws and it died right there with him. That his blood would cover us to wash us clean, forgive us of our sins, that nothing could separate us from the love of God. 
and now the word of God fully available by the spirit of God in our lives, that we can walk responsive to God, even in our flaws, even in our failures, in our struggles, in every season, our heart continuing to turn back to the voice of God, to recognize and respond to the word of God in our life, so that as we make it through our seasons, learning how to walk with God, we end up at the end of our lives and leave a legacy of fruitfulness. So we're going to close our time and worship and prayer and just want to create space. I invite you just to close your eyes. Just take a deep breath. And if you're willing, just pray that prayer that David prayed in Psalm 139, Lord, search me and know me. Is there any wayward thought in me? Is there anything off in my heart? Is there any place that I need to be honest with you, God? Any place that comes to mind where my heart has gotten hardened where my soul is getting crowded out. Or Lord, I need you to take me into deeper places. And just be honest with God. In the name of Jesus, I confess. I mean, whatever's going on. And the Bible's clear. When we confess our sins, the places we fall short... God is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And no matter where you are in your journey, no matter what season you're in, that God has shown himself in the perfect love of Jesus that is willing to walk in and rewrite your story, to set you on a new path, and that he's so good that in his grace, he can even take our failures and our mistakes from the past and turn them into something beautiful. A testimony of his redemption. Will you let Jesus come to you now, wherever you are in your journey? Can you respond to his word in your life? And the power of the cross is not just simply that Jesus is willing to take our junk on himself and let it die there with him. But that in turn, he pours out his righteousness, his goodness on us. That we can receive from him. So if you're willing to even just ask God, God, what do you have for me this morning? What are you wanting to pour into my life right now? What seeds are you planting in my soul? May they have room and space to grow and bear fruit in my life. So as we worship, we invite you to come and take communion. We have wine and bread up here in these tables.
that ultimate reminder of the presence of God in Christ and the forgiveness of God through the blood of Jesus. Our prayer team will be around the room. May you minister to one, one another in confession and intercession. Let's give God space to work in our lives this morning.